For us, for AJC, among our priorities, among our top, top priorities, is the desire to more intensively engage with Muslim-majority countries. Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. Next week, presidents, prime ministers, and foreign ministers from across the world will arrive in Manhattan for the UN General Assembly, bringing with them gridlock and opportunity. The gridlock we commuters will just have to suffer through, but the opportunity is one that we at AJC will be seizing. The UN General Assembly is a unique event. 193 countries will attend and leaders from around the globe will address the world from the UN rostrum. But the real action will be on the sidelines, in far smaller rooms behind closed doors in all important bilateral meetings. For AJC, this diplomatic marathon has become one of the most action-packed weeks of the year. In recent years, we have met with well over 70 world leaders each year to advocate on behalf of Jews around the world. We expect to have a similar number of private bilateral meetings this year. Joining us in AJC's Learner Media Center to talk about this momentous week is AJC CEO David Harris, who has pioneered the creation of AJC's Diplomatic Marathon, and who leads our global advocacy efforts. David, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Sefi. Let's start with the UN itself. Over the past 70-plus years, the organization has played a pivotal role in promoting arms control, improving global health, and organizing its member states to protect the environment, among many other things. Does the UN still have a vital role to play, or has it just become a place for grandstanding and photo ops? Well, first of all, let's step back uh, one step beyond where you began. The UN was the vision of Franklin Roosevelt, and it was a vision that he carried through the wartime until his own death in April 1945. So he did not live to see the founding conference that took place shortly after his death uh, in in San San Francisco. Francisco. Exactly. And the goal of that vision was to prevent war. It was to create a a meeting place where nations could not only talk, but hopefully solve problems peacefully and avoid the kind of cataclysmic war that the world had just witnessed from 1939 to 1945. That was the vision. Everything else derives from that. Uh, Now fast forward and to your question, the answer is really both. On the one hand, it does serve some vital purposes. And they are too often neglected because they're often seen as esoterica, things that most people don't really see. The work of the specialized agencies, the World Health Organization, uh, UNICEF, uh, intellectual property, uh, there's a whole host of issues where the UN is more than just a convening body and a talk fest. And they do good work, sometimes politicized, but they still do some good work. On the other hand, it also reflects the nature of the world in which we live. What is the UN? And sometimes people forget this. The UN is not some separate body. It's the reflection of the member states. And there are 193 of them. And regrettably, many of them are not democracies. They're authoritarian, despotic regimes. And their goal at the UN is to make sure that their regimes remain protected from any scrutiny or observation by the UN, much less any intervention. 
And some of those states have driven the UN toward a policy of real bias toward Israel. AJC, of course, has been the leading voice in calling out that bias. And, and U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Nikki Haley, has made clear that she shares our concerns. Have we seen any improvement in how Israel is treated at this global body? So again, we have to remember that because the UN is the reflection of its member states, the very same UN in 1947, two years after its founding, adopted a resolution in the General Assembly that endorsed the creation of the Jewish state alongside an Arab state. So at the very beginning, we looked to the UN and the UN fulfilled its role. The UN, however, evolved. Many more members uh, during the period of decolonization. Uh, then the communist countries, of course, became much more active. And this combination of the non-aligned movement in the communist world turned the UN very decidedly against Israel. And I think that the lowest point of the UN in that respect came in 1975, when the UN General Assembly adopted the infamous Zionism as Racism Resolution. And that resolution was on the books for 16 years until the George H.W. Bush administration, to its credit, led the effort to rescind it. And AJC, as Senator Moynihan at the time said, played a pivotal role in those 16 years of trying to reverse it. So, yes, today the UN is structurally and systemically biased against Israel. We could spend the next couple of hours talking exactly about how that manifests itself. On the other hand, there are some bright lights uh, a few, uh, especially in recent years. The current Israeli ambassador to the UN, Danny Danon, chairs one of the six committees of the UN. That was unthinkable just a short time ago. So every once in a while, you see something positive, but it shouldn't distract us from that systemic and structural bias, which, as you said, Ambassador Nikki Haley has been pointing out repeatedly. Now, you're being very fastidious, David, in drawing the distinction between the UN as a body and the 193 member states. And indeed, the UN actually is more of a fringe player in the story of the AJC diplomatic marathon, whereas it's our meetings with those member states that are the stars. Tell our listeners about the origins of the diplomatic marathon. Because AJC is the global advocacy organization and we're traveling around the world uh, day after day, week after week, we're operating on every continent, save for Antarctica, and we may get there yet. Uh, <laughs> penguins, get ready. <laughs> uh, but we're operating everywhere. We're traveling to many, many countries. And it occurred to us in early 1991 that when the UN General Assembly opens every September, world leaders come to New York. Our impression was they're very busy. This is not the time to meet with them. But nonetheless, we thought, you know what, let's give it a try. And so we sent out some letters to uh, countries that we knew, and to our pleasant surprise, we got four positive replies. So we were celebrating in 1991 the fact that we had four meetings with world leaders during the opening of the UN General Assembly. That was the beginning of this. No Jewish organization had gone into this space before. We were the first. For many years, we were the only ones. But of course, Jews being Jews, other organizations kind of looked enviously on this and decided that they were going to try and enter the space as well. Fast forward, the year is 2018. We have already more than 55 confirmed meetings with presidents, prime ministers, and foreign ministers. And I suspect that within the coming days, that number will grow to at least 65, 70, maybe even 75, Sefi. You'll be meeting with these 70, 75 leaders from all over the world advocating for the Jewish people. What is on AJC's agenda for these important meetings? 
Well, first, I have to make clear to the listeners of AJC Passport that no one human being could physically be at, at every single meeting. <laughs> it, it's simply impossible. There are only so many hours in the day. And I have to add for those uh, listeners who know New York at this time of the year, it's gridlock. <laughs> so simply getting from one meeting to the next is a navigational challenge. And when the president of the United States is in town, the whole midtown freezes. So, you know, at best, I'll get personally to 30, 35, maybe 40 meetings. That's it. Fortunately, AJC has a very deep lay and staff bench. So we'll cover all the meetings appropriately. Our agenda. I would, I would say our agenda is, in a sense, threefold. We have immediate issues of concern for each country. I mean, you name the country, and I'll tell you our particular concerns at a given moment in time. If there's a Jewish community, it may affect the status and well-being of the Jewish community. If there are important UN votes coming up, it may be about that. If there are Iran-related issues, as there always are, you can be sure they'll be on our agenda. That's number one. Number two, what distinguishes AJC from every other Jewish organization is that we also take a broader look at the world. We understand that Jewish well-being depends, yes, on the well-being of Jewish communities, on the well-being of relations with Israel, but Jewish well-being also depends on the larger state of democracy, security and stability. So we'll take an interest in these larger issues. So we'll discuss NATO. We'll discuss the transatlantic partnership. We'll discuss broader trends in Latin America or Asia, wherever it may be, Sefi. And the third piece of this is, if you want to be a successful diplomat or advocate, you have to learn how to listen as well as to talk. The countries that are meeting with us are not just meeting with us because they only want to hear about our agenda. They believe we're important in the conversation, and therefore, they want to be able to share what's important to them, believing that they might get our attention and perhaps in some cases even our support. So we try very carefully to divide the agenda essentially into these three parts. Each meeting is a little different than the others. This is not a cookie-cutter approach, but I think it explains why year after year after year, more and more country leaders want to meet with AJC. David, with your third agenda point, you uh, anticipated my next question, which might be a sign that I've been working here too long or, or, or just long enough. If you've been working here too long, <laughs> I can only imagine how long I've been working here. <laughs> um, so, so with that in mind, the fact that just as important as the issues that we plan on raising are the topics that the world leaders we will be meeting with want to discuss. What concerns do you expect for them to bring up to you? Well, again, we could go country by country from, you know, let's say um, A for Albania to Z for Zambia and everything in between. But by and large, many of them want, number one, to better understand the United States at any given moment. Obviously, at this moment in time, there's an endless curiosity about Washington, about this administration. But I can say as a veteran of this since 1991, it's been true every year since 1991. People want to know what's going on in Congress, what's going on in the White House. This tug of war that's always been the case in America between sort of the international approach of this country versus the isolationist instinct of many in this country. So that's number one. Number two, and this is really interesting, I find, as someone who's taken the temperature of diplomacy all these years, more and more and more they want our help to gain access to Israel. Now, you spoke earlier, Sefi, about the fact that the UN is not always a friendly place for Israel. And it's true, as I acknowledged. But we have to separate multilateral from bilateral diplomacy. Multilateral diplomacy, like when the European Union meets, when the UN meets, can be pretty rough on Israel. The lowest common denominator often prevails. But bilateral relations are often very different. 
So I can list for you a dozen, two dozen, three dozen countries that vote against Israel at the UN, you know, every Monday and Thursday. But they'll come to AJC in these private meetings and say, don't pay too much attention to our vote. It's meaningless. But, you know, what we really need is access to Israeli water technology. Or we really need access to understanding better Israel's agriculture and how it developed in a semi-arid zone. Or we really need help with cybersecurity or counterterrorism or national resilience or airport security. And yes, we know you're not Israelis. We know that. But you have friends in Israel, and we're not getting the attention we hope for from Israel. Now, why are they not getting the attention? Here's the good news. Because Israel is overwhelmed by such inquiries and requests from around the world. And that's the story that's underreported, I think, when we speak about Israel's place in the world. That's what's changed, Sefi, so dramatically in recent years. Israel is the ultimate 21st century country when it comes to innovation, entrepreneurship, the power of knowledge, and how it manifests itself in terms of water and food and security and safety. So they want to talk to us. I I remember one foreign minister, I I won't name the country, who said, you know, we have this anomaly. We're a Latin American country that is overwhelmed by rain, and yet we don't know how to capture it. So we suffer periodic droughts. Our agriculture is hurting. We often have to ration water to our citizens, and yet we have this constant rain. Can you, AJC, help us to meet the right people in Israel who can teach us how to capture the rain and turn our country into an Israel-like country in Latin America? You know, David, some of our listeners might be scratching their heads and thinking, 70 meetings? You know, I I can think of the countries that are really friendly to Jews, really friendly to Israel, and I I run out well before I get to 70. Um, You know, maybe some— You're not counting correctly. (laughs) Well, well, they might be thinking, okay, some of our old, you know, steadfast transatlantic allies in Europe, Israel, of course, might be a a country that we would meet with. If they're more familiar with the depths of AJC's work, they might know that we're likely to have meetings with Greece and Cyprus, having built up a, a triangular relationship there in the Mediterranean. What are some of the meetings that you think would really surprise people if you can talk about them? Well, I can certainly tease your listeners, <laughs> although it's probably not, uh, not fair. But we meet with a lot of Arab countries, for starters. So I think that's probably the most interesting piece of this. In any given year, I would guess we would meet with at least eight to ten Arab countries. Now, if you consider the fact that only Egypt and Jordan have open, full diplomatic relations and you work your way down from there – When we meet with six, eight, even 10 Arab countries, we're going into places which barely have relations with Israel. And if they do, they're so subterranean that very few people will know about them. So that's one really intriguing and interesting area for us. And this year will be no different, judging from our lineup so far, Sefi. We're also looking at other Muslim-majority countries that is outside the Arab world. They may be in Africa. uh, They may be in Asia. But for us, for AJC, among our priorities, among our top, top priorities is the desire to more intensively engage with Muslim-majority countries, be they Arab or non-Arab. We need to have that dialogue. We need to have that exchange. We need to humanize each side. And very often, as a result of these kinds of meetings here at the UN, AJC delegations will travel to these places. Occasionally, we're able to issue a press release or post a Facebook mention of it. Uh, Often we go quietly, but for AJC, over a number of years, this has been one of our highest priorities. Uh, Elsewhere, basically if you look at Latin America, with the exception of a country like Venezuela, 
we're probably meeting with just about every Latin American country. Uh, if not this year, then last year or next year. If we're not meeting with them, it's usually only a logistical matter. It's, it's, not, it's not something more. If you look at sub-Saharan Africa, there are very few countries that we're not engaged with. Uh, if you look at Asia, we're dealing with just about every Asian country, beginning with the largest and most consequential, China, India, Japan, South Korea. So taken in every direction, Sefi, there are very few countries that we don't engage with or approach or meet with at least once every two to three years, if not more often. Well, that's, that's truly fascinating. I mean, there are somewhere between 20 and 30 Arab countries in the world in the low 20s, I think. And to hear that we'll be meeting with, you know, somewhere between a third and a half of them over the course of Diplomatic Marathon is, is really quite impressive. Uh, I know that you have a lot on your plate. I know that this kind of thing doesn't just plan itself. So with that, we will thank you for your time and uh, let you get back to this important work. <laughs> Thanks very much, Sefi. I enjoyed being with you. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Helicopters. Good for the Jews? You know, when you think of Yom Kippur, one of the first things that comes to mind is probably the absence of food. As the holiest day on the Jewish calendar and a 25-hour-long fast, Yom Kippur doesn't have any of the food associations of other Jewish holidays. No matzah balls, no latkes, no apples and honey, no challah. But of course, the meals before and after the fast are crucial if you're going to be able to make it through all 25 hours. And if you're going to observe the holiday in a traditional way, those meals should be festive, joyous banquets, not just perfunctory dinners. Which brings us to the helicopters. As we have all doubtless been following, Hurricane Florence battered the Carolinas this week, leaving dozens dead, thousands and thousands displaced, and millions of homes either flooded or at risk of flooding as rivers across the region overran their banks. It was that flooding that made it impossible for the regular delivery of kosher food to reach the small Jewish community of Wilmington, North Carolina, in the days leading up to Yom Kippur. Impossible, that is, until two intrepid rabbis in Charlotte and in Wilmington connected and planned an airlift by helicopter of 150 pounds of kosher food. Now, how many Jews were stuck in Wilmington instead of safely elsewhere with family or friends? A small number, no doubt. But think of all the other times that helicopters have helped Jews support isolated Jewish communities or have enabled concerned Jews to get aid to non-Jewish victims of natural disasters elsewhere in the world or have empowered the Israeli Air Force to keep the Jewish state safe. Think about all of that, and I'm sure you'll agree that helicopters are good for the Jews. AJC Passport will be off next week in observance of the Sukkot holiday and that festival of global Jewish advocacy, the AJC Diplomatic Marathon. But we'll be back with you again in the first week of October. Until then, keep up with AJC on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at AJC Global. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. 
If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Alex Zeldin. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.